Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and to make the world a better place. So whether you're in business or an issue-based campaign or an organisation that's driving change in your local community, Dunstreet develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organises them to achieve common goals from the ground up. To find out how Dunstreet can partner with you in bringing about change in your local community, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello, my name is Stephen Donnelly and welcome to episode six of Socially Democratic, a weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On today's episode, we'll be joined by Brett Gale, who is the Executive Director of the Chifley Research Centre. And Brett will be on to reflect on the policies that Labor took to the most recent federal election uh, and also the policy challenges that Labor and social democratic parties across the globe are facing going forward. It'll be very interesting to hear from Brett about what Chifley is doing in this very important space. Uh, don't forget the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and leave a review. And for all the updates about the podcast episodes coming up, uh, don't forget to follow uh, Socially Democratic on the Dunstreet social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. But up next is Brett Gale. So we're joined on the line from Sydney uh, by the Executive Director of the Chifley Research Centre and future starting pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Brett Gale, welcome to Socially Democratic. Uh, g'day, Stephen. Great to be here. Uh, glad to be here joining from sunny Sydney. Although I think uh, Red Sox need closers at the moment rather than starting pitchers. So I'm happy to transfer to the bullpen for a... Uh, a healthy income increase from what I get currently. I uh, just checked the score from today's game and saw that that was uh, another loss to the Texas Rangers two in a row, so it's another series we've dropped. We're going to talk about the Boston Red Sox, but not right now. We're going to do that at the end. Uh, I had Josh Burns on. Uh, in fact, he was my first guest for the podcast um, earlier on in the year. Um, and Josh and I both shared a love of the NBA. And I said, because this is my podcast now, and I pretty much can do whatever I like, um, I'm, you and I are going to talk about the NBA at some point in this podcast. He said, sure, that'd be great. I said, but we probably should put it at the end because if we put it at the start, no one's going to listen to that and therefore not listen to the podcast at all. So I'm going to do uh, a favour with all of our listeners and let them know that we're going to, we will be talking about the Boston Red Sox and baseball in general, but we'll stick that at the end. So if people feel the need to turn off, we won't be offended. Um, but we've got you on here today to talk about... Um, uh, policy, really, uh, in, and that is in, that is your role at the Chifley uh, Research Centre. And I thought that we could maybe maybe break down the podcast into two parts, and that is to sort of do a bit of reflection on the election uh, that just happened, um, and keen to get your thoughts on it from a policy development and execution standpoint, uh, and then maybe focus a bit, bit of forward uh, focus on uh, where social democracy needs to head in terms of developing policy that achieve the things that we want to do for communities? Um, and how do you see Chifley playing a really, really important role uh, in that development? Um, so I thought that could be a good plan for a podcast today. Sounds fantastic. And I hope people do stick around, particularly the political and baseball nuts who it can't be just you and I that uh, fit that 
Venn diagram? No, it's a, it's a very unique Venn diagram. I could name a couple of people who will listen, um, but then uh, that would be outing them to their uh, family and friends, and I don't know if they want me to do that. Um, so let's start with the campaign. Um, that was, uh, look, you know, in the last couple of episodes, we've done, um, we've done a couple of, uh, had a couple of guests on in which we've sort of talked about the campaign from different aspects. We had uh, Claire Burns, the Victorian Labor Assistant Secretary, on literally the Monday after the election, uh, which is always a difficult conversation to have. Uh, Claire put her heart and soul into that campaign and sort of talked about it from a campaign pure campaign perspective. And then we had uh, Dr. Andrea Carson on the podcast last week. She uh, is uh, one of the senior academics uh, at the La Trobe University. And she talked about it from more of a, from a, from a, from an academic standpoint and particularly her level of expertise, which is in, in political communication and journalism and reporting and, and, and such. So I thought I'd get you on today to talk more about it from a policy perspective, because this campaign, uh, I don't think you could certainly fault Labor for uh, not having enough policies going into this election. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. Look, I, I think we had a massive policy suite and I, not sure that Labor should apologise for having had that. Um, you know, I, I heard the podcast last week with Andrew, and I think uh, you said something like, uh, which is something that I had said when I had to do a, a sort of panel a couple of days after the election uh, as well myself, and that is that when you win an election, you clearly have done everything right, and when you lose, you've clearly done everything wrong, uh, and you know, and that becomes the the status quo uh, belief about what happened in the election going forward. But I think uh, we need to step back, obviously, from from that, you know, what belief and have a look at sort of what really happened. I mean, uh, Labor did go with a great uh, swag of policies. Um, what I think perhaps in hindsight uh, that we were lacking was a sort of coherent narrative to wrap it up in a neat bow about what we were trying to achieve and why. Uh, I think most of our narrative seemed to focus on on the negative about them rather than what does it all mean, this great swathe of, of Labor policy. Uh, and I think that, that, in hindsight, we probably should have done a little bit better. Do you uh, – can it be as simple as – I think it was David Miliband said, uh, never take anything to – never take more than one message to an election campaign. Um, and some people would argue that, that that's just too simplistic – uh, an approach for a campaign. Do you, do you, do you agree with the, the Miliband approach that you really just need to have one message and just ram it down voters' throats? Or is it okay to have a bit of diversity uh, from both a policy setting in terms of the things that you're taking to the electorate and then how you choose to then communicate all of those policies to 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 those targeted voters? Yeah, I, th- I think they're two... They're almost two distinct things. I think you can take a, a large policy suite to the election, uh, and you don't need to try and talk about every single thing in your policy agenda. Uh, and I think that that partly is a problem. I, I agree with Miliband's assessment that that you shouldn't be trying to talk to too many things at once, but that doesn't mean you can't have the policies. And that's why that's why I say Labor shouldn't shy away from the fact that it had big bold policies. And what we need to remember is that, you know, at the end of the day, we ran 51% to 49%. Uh, we lost, sorry. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that we should throw out 100% of uh, the policies, as some people seem to be suggesting. I think we need a period of quiet reflection, think about what did work, what didn't work in the whole context of 
what at the end of the day went wrong in the campaign. But I think we should start from the perspective that says, let's throw everything out. We should start from the perspective that says, let's look at everything and let's think about all of these these things we've, we've put together. Um, you know, undoubtedly, we did have a, a, a policy suite that, 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 that scared people. And one of the questions we need to ask ourselves getting back to the message is that at a time when Australians are uh, feeling uncertain and you know, uncertain about their future, uncertain about their jobs, uncertain about their wages, you know, was presenting a wall of policy the best, the best way forward? Uh, but similarly... Uh, you know, we, we, we gave ourselves only six weeks to talk about the positive things we were doing. And I think in hindsight, again, that, that might have been a mistake. Uh, so we had been making the case for a number of years on, on the revenue side of the budget and what we were going to do and uh, the, the changes we were making there and why we were making them. But in an environment where people are not switched in that much to politics and only so, that, so what they picked up was, uh, in a sense, that that we were going to bring in new taxes without necessarily understanding the full detail of it. I think relying on the conventional approach that that left all the goodies to the six-week period of the campaign, when all indications were that people were going to be switched off and not interested because they're switched off and not interested in politics in general these days, uh, was a mistake. We probably should have been out there earlier talking about the benefits of what we were doing. So talking about our changes to childcare, for instance, which would have genuinely put money back in people's pockets, were a genuine wage-boosting measure. But unfortunately, we announced them on the first Sunday of the campaign, and that's not enough time, I think, for people to, to, to get the message through. And as I say, it's a traditional conventional approach to campaigning where you say, let's throw our goodies out in the campaign, let's not release them too early. But I think in this case, because we did have such a big agenda, putting more on the table of what we were doing to people, for people, sorry, earlier would have been a better approach. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, thought you have there because part of the criticism that's happened from the commentariat since the election was that Labor made the mistake that John Hewson made, which was they went with a big target strategy. Um, in saying that, you know, this is what we're all about, judge us uh, and vote for us on this, um, and, and we'll suffer the consequences or, or, have, a, or have a great result on, on election night. But, um, you know, John Hewson brought out the fight-back package in, in 1993, um, more than 12 months out from the election. Um, and so it gave both um, his opponents and also his own party time to either sell or to attack that policy setting, um, that was one... When people make those comparisons between this election and 1993, I think there are fundamental differences, and that is... And you just alluded to it there, is that, yeah, we had some big, big initiatives, but we never sort of brought them out, apart from franking credits and um, and the um, uh, the negative gearing policy, um, which was actually three years old, uh, or maybe even longer. Most of the stuff we did bring out that was quite substantial did come out quite late in the campaign context. And something that I found that was been uh, John Howard certainly didn't want to make that mistake in 1996. It got to the point when he was making he was announcing policy, policies 
you know, literally days out from the election and doing it in a manner that couldn't even be critiqued by the journalists because he would do the doorstop or the media, the media event and then hand out the notes about the policy as he's getting back on the bus to go to the next location so they can't ask him questions about that. So it's a fundamental shift in the way that campaigns and how they communicate their policies to, to their audiences. Um, what I saw different from, say, Daniel Andrews in 2014 was that they made their announcements, significant major announcements about infrastructure, about job creation, about health, uh, about uh, education, uh, 12 months out and just talked about them ad nauseum. Now, sure, in the, the campaign itself in 2014, they made smaller announcements around those, around those big ticket items, but ultimately the electorate had plenty of time to consume that. So are you saying that you don't think that um, Labor really, for the good stuff they had to t talk about with the electorate, they just didn't bring them out early enough? Uh, that's right. That's right. I, I, I think the Daniel Andrews analogy is, is perfect. As you say, big ticket items talked about uh, for, for 12 months. And we had some really positive uh, changes in what we're proposing. And I don't think that six weeks was enough time for, for those to, to sink into people. And, you know, the difference between now and 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 uh, and and previous generations is is people's attention spans as well. There's you know back in back in the day, well, John Howard was deliberately doing that to, because he knew that he was uh, coasting to victory, uh, which turned out to be to be true, I guess. So he thought he could get away with it, and and he did. And unfortunately, you know, the lesson that we had all learned since then was that uh, if you curl up curl up into a little ball and don't say anything, then you can get elected. But uh, what I'd say is that didn't work for Labor in '98. Uh, it didn't work for Labor in 2001 uh, or any other election before that. Um, because when you are a social democratic party, you do need to enunciate what change you're going to bring, what what you're going to do to make the country better. Uh, and but in the modern era, I think where people are distracted by their phones and their Netflix and uh, all sorts of things, and not you know, the, the saturation of the media like it used to be, the, the, uh, the, the dominance of, of TV like it used to be, uh, doesn't cut through as much. So leaving things to announce to the campaign, you are handicapping yourself um, in terms of getting your message out to the people that might benefit. Um, I don't know if you noticed last week uh, on last week's podcast with uh, Dr. Andrea Carson, she mentioned that she felt that the Labor, Labor's policies produced um, too many winners and losers amongst the voting cohort. Um, and she cited the, the, cancer, uh, the uh, cancer policy announcement as one of them, in which she was saying, well, why not extend it to beyond, um, why specifically pick out cancer patients as, a, as an area for a major policy or health announcement? Why not, um, because that automatically alienates uh, voters that have not suffered from that experience. Um, do, you, do you think that there were winners and losers and therefore creating losers that inhibited our pathway to victory on election day? Oh, look, I, I'd, I'd put it in a different context. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I, I studied in my life uh, and that still sticks in my head, of the few things that stick in my head, uh, was behavioural economics. And one of the key tenets of behavioural economics is that people feel losses uh, more acutely than they feel gains. So, you know, there were there were people who were going to lose from some of our policies. We were unashamed about that. But what I think that behavioural economics framework means is you have to try a hell of a lot harder to make sure that the people getting gains understand they're getting the gains because the people who are feeling the losses will, uh, 
will will certainly uh, be vocal about telling you that, or at least uh, having it sink into them that that you are attacking them and taking their losses out. So, so I'm not necessarily sure we set up you know a framework of uh, sort of winners and losers in in that respect. Um, you know, I think the cancer policy, you know, went to went to a acute medical condition that many many Australians uh, are, are aware of and understand understand um, implicitly and and completely. Whereas um, and and it was and they can relate to the the concept of uh, of of the out of pocket bills that, that arise with cancer care. So yes, during the campaign there were other groups saying, "Well, what about us? Why aren't why aren't you know my health being funded?" But I, I think at the end of the day, you, you know, the, it's not a bu- limitless bucket of money, and cancer is still one of the greatest causes of death in Australia. So so picking picking at one one uh, mass thing is is not necessarily a negative. However, uh, as I say, when when you had other losers where we were where we actually were taking people away, not just I didn't get the same thing as that other person. Uh, then, then I think we really did need to double our efforts to make sure that the people benefiting from our policies understood them and felt like they were going to benefit. And as I say, I think the classic example are the changes we were going to make to the childcare rebate, which, which, which would have put a lot of money back into into people's pockets, would have allowed uh, you know the second uh, second earner in a family to go back into the workforce uh, without the the what we know as the childcare penalty, where you know for some people it's not worth working four or five days a week because because uh, the childcare costs outstrip it, and and that was a fundamentally good policy that would have you know, had all the benefits that we know about from childcare and all the benefits we know about getting people back into the workforce for the productivity of the economy. Yet, as I say, leaving ourselves only six weeks to sell it, it it's a bit difficult. You know, you know we we that should have been a, a policy we were out there selling. You know, in child every childcare centre for the last twelve months. Kevin Rudd in the uh, 07 election, the successful election for Labor, uh, pitched himself to the electorate as a economic conservative, and tried to, and I guess you could argue successfully, um, uh, negate any attack from the right on his economic credentials, and basically was saying to the electorate, look. If you trusted John Howard over the last however many years, you can trust me too because I'm just the same. But I'm doing a whole bunch of other things as well that is the difference between myself and uh, and the Prime Minister. Do you think in this election campaign from a policy setting that we were a little bit too uh, bold when it came to the economic side of the argument? Or were we just... Uh, were, were we taken by surprise by how well the, the Tories could construct an argument that put the fear of God into voters around taxation. Yeah. Oh, look, I think that's a, that's a great, that's a great uh, piece to, to think about. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we were bold and therefore, uh, in a sense, constructed a framework that can be used against, that could be used against us and could be used against us in a in a in a in a fear and a scared way, um, but I don't I don't I don't think we should discount uh, the role of Clive Palmer's money in in stoking that uh, that that fear around that that agenda. 
you know, 60, 50, whatever it was, 70 million bucks is a hell of a lot of money. Mm. So a, a quick story, my daughter, who is 10, uh, the week leading up to the election, sort of the Tuesday before the election, you know, she says to me as I'm making her breakfast before school, she says, oh, Daddy, uh, do, do kids have to vote the same way as their parents? You know, and you said, of course they do. Worry about, worry about this? And I'm like, well, if you want to keep living in this house, uh, you know, and eating food here and, and, you know, getting toys, you do. But, uh, but what I actually said was, well, you know, of, of course not. But, uh, you know, here's, here's the reasons your mother and I vote Labor and here's, you know, and, and they're the sort of values you've talked about. And I mentioned some speeches she'd given at school where she'd talked about the things that Labor, Labor traditionally does for people. And she nods her head sagely. And then she says, you know, but I'm just worried about all these taxes, Daddy. Hmm. Now, she's 10 years old, right? So she's never paid a tax in her life. She doesn't actually know what a tax is. Uh, but, you know, she spends like all 10-year-olds on YouTube and various other things. And, you know, the saturation of Palmer's message, anti-Labor message about taxes, uh, you know, completely non-targeted everywhere, uh, sunk through. And I think I think that you know he he essentially did the Liberal Party's advertising for them. Mm. So so you can criticise Labor for creating the the I guess bold tax framework. You can't understand that that the fear campaign uh, around it and and the scare, which were you know some blatant falsehoods, including Labor will raise trillion dollars worth of tax or whatever Palmer's ads were saying in the last two weeks of the campaign, I don't think we can dis- discount that at all as being being a factor rather than just just the policies themselves. You know, and then, of course, you know, the Liberals with their, with their death taxes um, scare campaign as well, you know. Um, they, they were playing into a framework that, that, that had been created. Uh, but, you know, the, the combination of all those things, I think, uh, on top of the policy, you know, certainly, certainly harmed us, not just the policy itself, I think. After every election loss, we go through this ritual um, um, self-mutilation sort of process of debating about whether we've moved too far to the left when it comes to policy settings, if we've moved, if we've moved up too far to the right. If it, it, it's, like, uh, it's like clockwork. It happens every time. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on on that and then sort of broaden that out to a conversation about social democratic parties and where we go from here because um, certainly at a federal level we're not, you know, there's, we're starting to paint a pretty ugly picture for Labor and it almost makes the hawk heading years uh, a fluke that we had such success because we, you know, for a while they started to say, oh, we're now the party of government, but... Um, if you look back since post-war, you know, those statistics about how many times we've won elections is pretty dim. And then looking at the results of um, a lot of the social democratic parties in uh, Europe most recently, both in the European parliamentary elections and also in their own national elections, things aren't going great for social democratic parties. What's your thoughts on, on how, where, the, where the Labor Party needs to position itself in, in turning to the future when it comes to policy development and, and just being electable? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think the first starting point we need to take in Australia is that uh, that the result was relatively close. So, you know, so this is the, uh, what is it, the third out of the last four elections where it's been, uh, you know, within the 51 to 49 bracket, uh, one way or the other. And, you know, so so I think 
we are dealing with a heavily polarized, almost equally balanced, uh, um, uh, fragmented sort of body politic and voting public. And that's so that's the first thing we need to overcome. And I think think in terms of that, some of that does go to the messaging uh, as well as the policy development. And that that means we really need to work out what what sort of message we have for the whole for the whole of Australia for the whole country, uh, and uh, because you're right, there 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 is a fear around around the world, uh, and you see it particularly in some U.S. results, but particularly in Europe, that there is a fracturing of what was uh, what one might call the the social democratic coalition, the sort of big umbrella that sort of existed for fifty odd years uh, since the sort of late late 60s, early 70s, where social democrats were able to cobble together uh, their traditional working class uh, supporters uh, and the icing on top of the electoral cake that helped uh, us win elections was getting sort of slightly more well-off uh, people who are involved, who, are, who believed in progressive values around lifestyle. Uh, now, that, that, that coalition, particularly in Europe, seems to be fracturing you know, it's uh, in fact, you know, the, the Steve Bannon, Bannon makes no secret of the fact that he would love uh, to create a working class party of the right. Uh, you know, that's his, his sort of fantasy uh, political political movement. But but we do see uh, this, you know, in, in, in Europe in particular with you know Brexit, where traditionally Labor areas voted for a sort of pro-nationalist, nativist, uh, you know, stay-at-home sort of outlook, whereas the sort of more progressive uh, labour areas voted heavily uh, to, to, to remain in the European Union based on sort of this globalist, you know, view of the world. So these, these, these sort of tectonic plates are shifting in the body politic around the world. I think the difference with Europe and Australia is that a lot of the social democratic parties in Europe have been stung by actually being too close to the right. Uh, Germany is a classic example, uh, but some of some of the others as well. That uh, you know, when the when the global financial crisis hit, uh, what they relied on was either they were in coalition with the right, uh, particularly in Germany, where they bought in uh, austerity measures, and uh, you know, therefore it wasn't it wasn't the 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 uh, conservatives who copped the blame for that. It was the social Democrats because their traditional base just went, well, if you're going to do that to us, we may as well leave you and vote for somebody else who's going to talk thing, our talk. The same thing happened in, uh, in, in the Republic of Ireland as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and one could argue probably, probably Britain, although, you know, it's, uh, one would think that potentially the sort of Blair Brown government had run out of steam after 15 years anyway. So, so, but you know, but enacting austerity and those sort of measures. I mean, the contrast to Australia under under our government's response to the to the GFC couldn't have been more pronounced. I mean, we were we were strong with stimulus and uh, and looked after people. But uh, you know that we we in hindsight probably didn't get enough credit because uh, people never felt threatened because most most people's jobs never ended up being in danger. Uh, but but I think some of the results we're seeing in this election, particularly in sort of working class areas in Queensland, but even working class areas in in Western Sydney, uh, is is swings swings against Labor, 
And we need to really take a long, hard look and a think about that and work out whether this in Australia is a presage of this fracturing of the social democratic coalition in in uh, that we see in Europe um, or or is an anomaly. And now we need to have a think about whether uh, the, the fact that we have uh, compulsory voting and compulsory preferential voting here uh, has papered over that crack for the last little while. Um, you know, and and if there's tectonic plates are shifting, it's it's a pretty sobering and depressing place, I think, for social democrats and particularly traditional Labor parties, uh, because you know if we lose the working class base, then then we've lost the entire traditions of why we exist as as a movement and as a Labor party. So we need to we need to spend a fair bit of time, I think, looking at that and working out what policies uh, work for those people, but also what message. You know, we, we do need to think about what message we were sending the traditional working class voters in this election and whether or not uh, we had the right policies for them as well as for other people. Yeah, the question about the working class uh, and the relationship it has with the Labor Party um, is very is very cool right now amongst some people in, 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 our, in our broader movement. Um, I don't know whether it's a resurgence of hipsters who are trying to all reclaim that they've apparently got working class roots or not. But I have found it interesting, uh, certainly over um, not just this election campaign, but the last two or three election cycles, this uh, this this view that we're that the Labor Party is drifting from its working class base. I, I went and had a look at um, the primary voting results for Labor in a traditional working class electorate in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, um, the seat of Cornwall. And I went back as far as 1990. And it's interesting to see the primary uh, vote of Labor in that electorate because it actually fluctuates. It effectively fluctuates from as low as 45% primary for Labor in 1990 uh, to as high as... Uh, uh, 62% for Labor in 1998. But it ebbs and flows. And in fact, um, at the most recent election, the 2019 uh, election, our primary vote in the seat of Cornwall was at 53%. Um, in 2016, it's at 56%. So we've always had a swing away from us uh, in this most recent election. But in 2013, our primary vote was below 50 um, you know, it's, uh, in 2004, it was bang on 50. In 2001, it was bang on 50. In 2007, it was up around 60. So it, it peaks and troughs. So I, mean, I know this is only one small sample, but I just, I just, I'm just not completely buying this argument right now that the working class are deserting the Labor Party. Um, and you may be right. You do make a really interesting point when you say that because we have both preferential voting and compulsory voting and maybe papering over the cracks because it's forcing people. But certainly looking at a primary vote, that is them, that is a working class voter or a voter, I should say, putting a one next to the Labor Party candidate. Um, certainly in working class, uh, traditional working class areas, our vote goes up and down with the success of our party, really. Um, and there isn't some sort of... Like, if you, you can look at some seats in, the United, in, in, in both the United States and in Britain where, over a long, sustained period of time, the working-class vote has deserted Labor. Um, but I don't think we're saying, seeing that here in Australia just yet. And it leads... And I want to get your thoughts on, on this, Brett. It leads to this sort of argument within the party about there's different schools of thought about what type of party we are. Are we a working-class party? Are uh, we the, the, the party of the inner-city urban elite? Um, or beyond that, are we a party that's about this sort of outer suburban and regional middle class? Um, 
because let's not forget that ultimately you win elections when the middle class vote for you. That's certainly in Australia because we have compulsory voting. That's, um, you know, that's the, that is the key to success. But I feel the answer to who our, who our identity is or Labor's identity is actually all three of them. And when all three of those groups vote for Labor at the ballot box, that's when we win. I think Daniel Andrews achieved that in um, 2018. Steve Brax consistently did that. Mike Rand, Bob Carr, you know, Beattie, Hawke, all through the 80s. Um, so the hard part, I guess, is from a policy setting, how do you develop policies that are... Um, that are attractive to those three reasonably diverse groups of people. And what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. No, I think that is exactly how Labor wins elections. Uh, and that's why, that's why the, the, the questioning around whether that broad coalition uh, is fracturing is, I think, one we do need to spend some time thinking about. Uh, because you're absolutely right. We, we do need those three groups of of people to to uh, vote for us, for us to, to win, to bring us over the line. I mean, you know, I, I tend not to take the seat of Lindsay as a litmus test because my view is Lindsay is and has been for uh, most of the past 30 years uh, or at least the last sort of uh, 20, 20 plus years, uh, a, a liberal seat that Labor occasionally wins. But it is... It is a, uh, a, a, a what you might call middle-class aspirational seat in some respects. And so I think you do need to marry uh, those, those three groups together completely to, to form the coalition that, that can get us over the line. Uh, and at the end of the day, it can give us 76-plus you know, seat we need, we need to win. Now, I don't think it's impossible to craft a, a policy you know, platform that can appeal to those three groups. I mean, you know, we, we talked a lot about wages in this election and, you know, you and I will come back and talk about, you know, wages and wage stagnation sort of when we look at uh, policies going forward. But I, I, I think that, you know, we had great policies for trying to look after sort of the lower end of the wage scale, if you like, bringing back... Um, bring back uh, penalty rates, uh, you know, um, uh, calling for a living wage rather than a minimum wage. They're, they're fantastic. But but they're not the only wages in Australia that have gone backwards or stagnated in recent years. And I think what was missing from our policy armament was, uh, and and I think this is this is this is uh, a fault of you know, this is a problem for the entire labour movement. We need to solve this, not just the political arm of the labour movement. What what is our wages policy for those who, you know, one might call middle class, uh, who've also seen their wages stagnated? And and I'm not sure we had a, a policy for them. You know, as I say, you know, the childcare policy would have put some money in people's pockets, would have been an actual wage increase. But I'm not sure that we had a specific wages policy that would go to the concerns of those people. Um, you know, but if we had of it goes to your essential thesis about how do you how do you marry marry policy for those for those you know sort of disparate groups that traditionally we need as a broad coalition for us to win. Yeah, and that's my natural go-to here is 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 an answer that's not about policy. It's an answer about messaging because I think that perhaps our policies, in terms of trying to address um, um, wage equality uh, and wage stagnation. Um, 
are not easily addressed, but that, that it will take time, and I think that you know Labor would eventually get there. But I think in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in the urgency of an election campaign, uh, James Carville always said, "Your opponent can't talk shit about you if you've got your fist in his mouth." And on the issue of wages, I felt that perhaps what we should have been saying to the electorate was, John Howard said that he wouldn't bring in work choices, and he did. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull said he wouldn't um, reduce penalty rates, and he did. Uh, Scott Morrison is going to cut your wages, and he will. You need to vote Labor. And just put the fear of God into workers out there saying, if, if you're feeling the pinch about wage stagnation and you want something different, you don't, don't vote for that lot because you know what? They've got form on this, on this issue, and there is an alternative. You should be voting for us. Um, and just hammer that home for the last five weeks of the campaign. Um, oh, I couldn't. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I actually think you know, even taking it a step further and using uh, one other Americanism, you know, um, a narrative that had been crafted around, you know, that there's that there's that uh, old American saying about every time the election, you know, election comes around, do you feel better off than you were four years ago? Um, you know, if if Labor had crafted a narrative around, do you feel that you are better off than you were six years ago? The overwhelming uh, answer to that, of course, would have been no. Uh, you know, put the put the heat back on the the uh, government for their mismanagement of the economy and for, you know, in Matthias Cormann's words, their deliberate, you know, uh, structural uh, plan to to decrease and flatten wages. Uh, I think absolutely, uh, you know, it goes to messaging, not necessarily policy. I think that that was a missed opportunity for us to drive home that that message about. Things are worse than they were when the Liberals came to power when it comes to your everyday living standards and your everyday ability to uh, to buy things and to get wage increases. And, you know, and, and we don't have to look further than the you know, governor of the Reserve Bank and the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank to hear them saying the same things, that they're worried about wage stagnation. So it was it was a fertile ground they were waiting for us that I think, unfortunately, um, we let slip through our fingers. Let's turn our attention to the future, um, and I thought that we could maybe address sort of three areas um, of policy that um, I think are both m most urgent for um, f for Australians, but also very much something that Labor um, or social de social democratic parties around the world actually kind of need to get their ha get get a handle on. Um, otherwise, they're going to get wedged on it constantly. And th those three areas I want to talk to you about is climate. Um, the economy and broadly speaking, um, employment and wages and security, um, and then and population growth and migration and, and and the things that come out of that. Let's continue on this conversation that we've just been talking about the the, uh, the economy and employment. Um, I had a conversation with someone in the union movement um, in the lead up to the, ele the election campaign. And they were talking about the change the rules campaign, um, and I was just saying to them, like, you know, this is such a great, um, such fertile ground for the union movement. Uh, going into this particular campaign, and even if there wasn't a campaign on right now, a, a, an election campaign, but uh, even just a general campaign that the union movement was seeking to run, I don't think there's been another time that I can consider in, in certainly years that I've been involved in politics in which there's such consensus amongst the community about wage stagnation and people feeling the pressure uh, that here is a great opportunity for the union movement to say, well, one of the simple ways in which we can fix that is that you need to get organised in your workplace. 
and use the power of collective bargaining in your workplace to try and seek to improve your wages and conditions. And I put that to uh, this, uh, this union organiser. Uh, and I said, are workers, be that union members or non-union members, coming to that natural conclusion that that's one way in which they can fix these problems is for themselves to, you know, collectively empower change at a workplace level? And he said, no, they don't see the union movement or unions as a solution to the problem when it comes to wage stagnation, which is fascinating in itself. And I don't think that we would have thought that 30 or 40 years ago. Um, that's the first, and I just want to put that to you and say you know, this is the challenges for the broader movement. That if, even, that if workers can't even come to that conclusion, then we've got a long, long way to go to try and fix the problems from a policy setting. How do, let's start with that. Get your thoughts on that, and then let's maybe branch out a bit and talk about you know globalisation and disruption and, and 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 the other things that are starting to happen with the fast pacing change of yeah. uh, of our economy. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great example of the success, I think, of the right uh, in. Uh, 40 years, maybe longer, of demonising, well, probably longer actually, uh, of demonising the union movement and, and the role of unions, I think. Uh, the fact that, as you say, you would, you would think that conditions have never been more proprietorist for people to actually realise that, that in unity is strength, as we say, that joining together in collective action might, might help them. But it is, you know, it is, it is I guess, in one sense, the logical outcome of, as I say, decades of demonising unions and also decades of, of, uh, of um, you know, hammering home a message that the individual is paramount, that you, the individual, are in charge of your own destiny. And, you know, and this, this I put down to uh, a success of consistent right-wing messaging over a long period of time. And this is, this is something that, from a wider perspective, I'll, I'll, if, you, if you indulge me for a minute, uh, that we in the left have been have been not very good at, I think, uh, over, over 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 recent times. Uh, we seem to believe that uh, fall back on the fact that that because we have the right morality on our side, that people will automatically agree with us and not have paid attention to the fact that the things we hold dear and and the structures that we believe in have been consistently undermined and demonized for 40 years with with the help occasionally of uh, of of social democratic governments uh, actually but you know it 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 is and and it's work that actually starts in right wing think tanks i mean you know this this you'd be well aware of the concept of the overton window about what is acceptable in public debate and shifting it and you know, there's plenty of evidence over the last numerous numbers of decades of of right-wing think tanks and uh, right-wing cheer squads pushing out the bounds of acceptable public policy debate and pushing it in a right-wing direction so that uh, when conservative governments get in, the things that they enact seem actually normal and timid compared to the things that uh, the right-wing cheer squads and think tanks have been calling for. Now, I think we, and it's incumbent upon groups like Chifley and other progressive think tanks as well, but the broader sort of socially democratic uh, progressive movement itself to to begin trying to to push that Overton window back the other way to, you know, try and be a bit more, um, you know, left wing. Now, now, our parliamentary representatives don't have to go as far as we are, but what we should be doing is is pushing the pushing the pushing the debate so that we can redress some of the balance on this stuff. Because as I say, it is a crying shame that 
that uh, in this current age with wages stagnating and with evidence from around the world of wages stagnating, we uh, we can't get people thinking that maybe collective action, maybe joining together might help them. Even even again, you know, when we have the Reserve Bank governor sort of intimating that maybe maybe that is one of the solutions. Uh, you know, so so I think we are in a real bind when it comes to wages and what to do about it. Um, if we if we're not getting collective action, of course, you know that's that's overlaid with with you know, rules, regulations, restrictions that conservative government have put in place that make it harder and harder to to uh, to to um, collectively organise. Which is essentially what the uh-huh. change the rules campaign was trying to achieve. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right, and and that was exactly exactly you know the right the right track to try and to try and achieve that and redress that um, because that is that ha- that is one of the impediments to 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 workplace uh, bargaining and to collective action. But I I think that what we need to begin thinking about as as policy uh, proponents is do we need you know a more radical approach. If, uh, you know, and again, this can only be enacted, I guess, by social democratic governments, but if, if we're not going to get take up for collective bargaining, do we have to think about uh, what sort of a system we have where if union membership is so low, uh, people are not still willing to join unions. In fact, you know, some, some workplaces uh, and, and ways of working, you know, do not lend themselves at all. Uh, to to um, collective bargaining with the increasing casualization of work, do we need some mechanism, I guess, that sets up uh, a proxy for for workers? You know, the uh, it, it's sort of been thrown out of a window now. But the old tripartite industrial relations commissions that were brokering um, deals between government employers and workforces gave people real wage increases. You know, I, I think, and, and I don't have a solution, uh, but I think, you know, thinking about radical solutions that don't necessarily have to be you know, exactly that, but replicate those conditions that allow uh, workers to have some sort of a say are something that we really seriously need to think about if we are going to get um, wages moving again, rather than capital just completely taking a greater share of productivity increases when they happen. Here's a radical idea. In the 1980s, as you know, the uh, the Hawke government entered into an accord with, uh, with the union movement in an effort to control wage growth. Now we have a problem in which we have too little wage growth. Is it time that government, and this will only be a Labor government that would do this, uh, enter into an accord with, uh, with business to say to them, we have to get wages moving again? Um, we've created an industrial relations system that it's almost impossible for workers to bargain to improve wages, so we are going to have an accord with you, which will give you concessions, but at the same time, uh, you have to start to increase wages for the workforce. That sounds like um, like government intervening way too much in capital, but um, is that something that is... Uh, I mean, is, is it, it just seems like there's, there's, this, we need to restore some sort of balance here in, in the favour of, 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 of workers. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's I guess what I'm getting at. That that what are the radical solutions we need to think about to redress that? Uh, you know, a lot of people in business, you know, know that having stagnant wages is not in their long term interests. But they're also, you know, they uh, they fall back on well, we've got to give return to shareholders. We've got to do a list. So, you know, even looking at corporate 
uh, law rules, corporate law regulations that that give primacy uh, to to shareholders above any other any other um, you know stakeholder group of companies is something that, that labor governments could look at. But certainly, you know, if 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 businesses themselves won't uh, you know won't won't uh, voluntarily do this. You know what? What are the carrots and sticks that governments can look at to help them to bring to bring to bring people together? And as you say, perhaps they are, you know, carrots on various things, as they were with with the the accords of the of the 90s, of the 80s. Sorry, uh, you know. But but I do think what we need to think about are what are creative solutions to this impasse, because it seems to me that we are stuck in this bind where people say. Uh, it's 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 all terrible wage stagnation. Yet uh, we're still relying reliant on a on a strong organised unionised workforce that probably will never come back. You know, you know, if if we if we believe that that's the solution, well, we might be holding our breath for a long time. As much as those of us who are who are allies and friends and and members of the union movement would would like to see a greater increase in union membership. Um, you know, it, 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 it seems increasingly hard that that will be achieved. So we do need to begin plotting, thinking about what are the, what are the innovative, um, you know, if people don't like the word radical, what are the innovative solutions we can come up to that, that, that as I say, uh, what is the proxy for what was once the strength of unions to represent workers? You know, what, what, what can we come up with as a proxy for for giving workers some balance back in this debate. Let's turn our attention to climate for a moment. This issue has been the policy Achilles heel for all sides of politics over the past decade, from you know the Greens voting down policies or put a price on carbon through to the internal debates within the, the Liberal Party uh, that keeps bringing down Prime Ministers. Um, who do you think is going to be the first to land a national climate policy that's both good for our, the future of our environment and doesn't hurt working Australians or is attractive to working Australians and isn't or sorry, is bulletproof uh, to short-term political attacks. Yeah, this is this is another one where, uh, in my most depressing moments, I think that maybe maybe we should give up on the idea of federal action on climate change. Uh, you know, and 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 you know, ask ourselves a question: Have the climate deniers uh, demonised uh, and poisoned the well, as it were, on climate change action? So so badly that at a federal level it's a very difficult thing to do and almost intractable problem to solve and maybe you know should those of us who believe in action on climate change be placing our energies you know towards state governments and local governments and businesses that want to do the right thing and are increasingly doing the right thing and even individuals and consumers uh, that want to do the right thing now that's that's i guess in my darker more depressing moments about about climate action but it is it is one way forward uh you know we we don't have time to keep sitting around uh, over and over and over again fighting the same fights we've had eventually for the last decade or more uh you know so uh, we, we there are state labor governments around the place there are local councils who are interested there are businesses you know maybe Maybe, you know, those of us who care about climate should spend some of our energy getting those uh, bodies to enact action on climate change uh, so at least we get some something moving. But at a federal level, I think um, 
we need to we need to overcome the sort of again this is a narrative problem I think uh, with with climate change we haven't been good at explaining to people or in fact coming up with the exact policy solutions that 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 can allay the fears of those people who quite rightly are worried about their jobs and worried about their their power bills in a time of of straightened living circumstances uh, and and partly that's because you know the, the, those in favour of climate action uh, tend to talk to people and just believe in in what one might call a rational way uh, rather than to the emotional part of people's brains and you know seem to think that if we just recite the facts to people, eventually they will they will sink in, uh, and and that's not the way you communicate with people, and that's not the way you convince people to come along with you for the journey. Uh, so I do think that that we need a new frame in how we talk to to people who are not outright deniers but sceptical about climate change or worried about what radical change might do to their job and to their lifestyle and to uh, you know, and to their cost of living, uh, we need to we need to really reframe the debate. And pe- and people are doing things in their own lifestyle. You know, the, the the there there are large parts of you know North Queensland, Central Queensland, where where Labor lost uh, votes. You know, some would say on the back of uh, Adani, uh, where where the take up of solar panels on people's roofs is huge. So people are doing things. Uh, in their own lives, we just need to stop, you know, hectoring, uh, which is which is which is a favourite sport of of people on the left. This culture of scolding people for not doing the right thing, and actually begin talking to people uh, about how they see the problems and how they see the solutions. You know, we need we need to come up with an answer to the question that always comes up about what can Australia alone do? You know, why should we act by ourselves? Um, you know, I think there are answers to that question. Uh, that we that we that we can that we can put easily, but we don't seem to be very good at at uh, at at, at um, explaining them to people. And and likewise, if we are going to have climate change policies, we cannot divorce them from a wider industry policy about jobs. And and the discussion about jobs needs to be much more com- concrete, much more about how people will benefit much more about what will happen to somebody who loses a job um, from taking climate action and giving people a, a clear path rather than they, you know rather than the industries will just come and and replace it um, you know it's 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 uh, unless we can crack that nut and unless we can come up with a policy suite that answers both of those uh, sort of conundrums addressing action on climate change and reassuring people about what the pathway is to a future uh, for them in terms of a decent standard of living and a decent job, then we will always be wedged and we will always come off second best. Is the debate lacking uh, a, uh, a voice from the, the corporate sector who do recognise, um, whether they recognise it from a moral perspective or if they recognise it from a bottom uh, from a from a budgetary perspective or a, or a business proposition, um, that climate change uh, is something that they need to invest in, um, because there certainly are plenty of big multinational organisations that are investing heavily in in uh, in the climate um, and sustainable, you know, s- you know, sustainability and, and wind farms and and and, and renewable energy. Um, are we not 
Uh, are they just quietly going about their business and doing that? Um, do we do we need uh, to hear more from them in those conversations uh, at a government level uh, to perhaps try and kill off this um, this fear that exists in the, com in the just in the broader general community about uh, I don't you know I support I worry about climate change and I worry about my kids' future, but ultimately I've got to put food on the table, so that's actually my number one priority. How do we over? I mean, is it? it I'm, just, I'm looking towards this to say, where are you guys on this? Why are you not a little bit louder when it comes to talking about this debate and trying to push uh, back? Absolutely. And if you think back uh, 12 years ago, uh, businesses were active. You know, businesses were strong. You know, at the time that, that, that Howard came reluctantly to the concept of an emissions trading scheme, businesses were out there calling for this stuff. They were strong. They were positive. It was it was only, be, only when... Uh, the the conservative parties uh, began, uh, you know, the destructive path of of demonising all climate action. That that business community began to shut up shop. So yeah, I, I think it is important that business business come out uh, strongly on this. But and, and and it doesn't even have to necessarily be in a political way. You know, it, it can be in a way that is simply showcasing what they're doing and the fact that they take it seriously as an issue. And, you know, here we are. Here's my wind farm. Here's what I'm doing as a company to reduce my own emissions. Now, business could be much louder at that to, to – and, and that by implication, that's not setting up a fight with their, you know, with the conservatives that, that they are more aligned with. It is actually just showing the conservatives that, that, that stuff is happening, whether they like it or not. Um, but I, I do think I do think business has been largely absent in this debate for a number of years, and that's as I say partly because they've been beat up by the conservative skeptics and deniers, uh, but also um, you know for their for their own reasons. And I think I think it's really important that that they do add their voice to that debate. That's what I say, and for climate activists as well, continuing to work on business particularly and with business, particularly those who do take this issue seriously, I think is a really important strategy in the next little while going forward. Well, therefore, we have a, a, a federal government that clearly is not interested in doing one thing about addressing climate change. Turning our attention just uh, quickly before we wrap up to um, you know population growth and, and, and migration, I feel like there are two sort of stories that are happening in this country right now, and you can feel that the minute you cross... Uh, the, the the Murray River certainly in 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 New South Wales and particularly for Sydney people and I'm keen to get your thoughts on this as a Sydney sider that uh, you know population growth um, is of concern particularly in the outer suburbs of, of Sydney um, whereas you know down here in Victoria you kind of got this feel from you know, Daniel Andrews leadership that we've taken a sort of Statue of Liberty approach to migration you know give me your tired your poor your huddled masses uh, if you, you know how to write code, we'll, we'll take you. Um, you know, and Victoria, is, on current projections, will overtake New South Wales as the most popular state in the next 10 years. Um, are we... Where are we on this sort of population growth debate and what policy or policies do... Because Labor sort of... I find that Labor are nervous about talking about this. The, this, the scars of the, the Howard years when it came to migration, and, and the overlay of that is, is refugees as well. Um, for a long, long time, it was a bipartisan um, position. You know, it was Buddy Fraser that, you know, opened the doors to take in all the refugees from the Vietnam War, for God's sake, you know. Um, but now it seems to become this sort of issue that we... It's a tar baby we just don't want to touch. But at the same time, 
you know, for a country, a young country like Australia that n needs to continue to prime our economy, we need more people. Um, how do, what's Chifley's thoughts on getting that policy setting right that both is great for our economy but also, um, you know, palatable to a community that is worried about, you know, infrastructure and, and just resources in their own community to get to and from work? Yeah, it, 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 it is a muddled mess, unfortunately, that, that as you say, crosses over all of those things. Uh, you know, fear for whatever reason of, of people coming and, you know, and, and lack of control of borders, um, which ties into you know, where, where conservatives have been very effective at wedging labour on refugee policy and other things, but also with the day-to-day -day, uh, sense that, that getting around is harder, that we lack infrastructure, we lack services. And I think in one sense we should, you know, try and break the nexus between those things. They, they should be, you know, refugees should be a conversation we're having about, about refugees and refugee policy uh, separate to allowing, you know, refugees to be de demonised for, uh, you know, for, for the fact that our cities are overcrowded because we know that's an absolute bollocks, uh, you know, that, that that's not the reason our cities are overcrowded. You know, it is, it is uh, for many years, a lack of proper infrastructure, proper services investment, mainly from state governments. Uh, and and uh, I think people are much more comfortable with, with uh, population growth uh, if they think they can get around, if, if, if their daily commute to work, if their daily commute to pick up the kids, if their daily, you know, weekend uh, going to kids' sport or whatever, you know, or, or even just out to a movie or whatever is not sort of made particularly onerous because of lack of transport options, lack of, lack of services. So I think, um, you know, a much, much, much bigger, and this is unfortunately something that people have been talking about for the last dozen years, particularly as interest rates were around the world were at all-time lows. You know, greater investment in infrastructure um, across a whole range of of uh, issues is is vitally important. Um, uh, but it is, it is, you know, and and that lack of services, that lack of infrastructure, that feeling of frustration about it is actually something that current federal government tapped into quite well in the election campaign. You know, when I saw their federal budget, uh, part of me laughed and went, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of state government type things in this federal budget, you know, funding for commuter car parks, funding for various other uh, services that are traditionally the remit of state government being done directly on high from the federal government. But, you know, in terms of tapping into a sentiment that people feel, they were sort of the right policies. You know, getting, you know, fixing up infrastructure so that people's daily lives are easier, I think, is a massive step on the way to getting people to accept higher population growth and higher pop and higher levels of immigration. It's when people feel that we're just getting more and more people and services are getting run down and it's getting harder and harder to get around that resentment to immigration rises, I think. So we do need, uh, you know, to have a holistic approach and a really deep uh, approach to to the infrastructure, particularly of our major cities, particularly Sydney and Melbourne. Broadly. And you're right, Melbourne will overtake Sydney in terms of population. Um, and you know, that's why I think you know, the, the sort of policy agenda that Daniel Andrews has taken to the last two elections, which was squarely aimed at, at infrastructure, 
and then actually living up to that by actually delivering on the infrastructure changes he'd promised uh, so that when he was up for election the second term, there was a track record of achievement for him to point to and say, look at this. Um, and people then, when he says, well, I've got these other, uh, you know, the, 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 the rail loop and various other longer-term infrastructure policy proposals, people believe him and believe they can be delivered. But, but it, it's, it's core bread and butter. Who knew that uh, doing what you say and saying what you do was a good recipe for electoral success? Um, indeed, indeed. Let's uh, yeah. let's just broadly talk about um, what the focus of Chifley will be in the uh, in the coming uh, next twelve to eighteen months um, in this sort of post-election uh, defeat, and w- where your energies will be focused on from a policy development sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you know, um, as as the official think tank of the Labor Party, I think we have a sort of unique remit in 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 what we should do and where we should go. Uh, and it also gives us a bit of bit of leeway. So, you know, some of these big picture issues that we've touched on today we'll be we'll be looking at over the over the next little while. Um, you know, particularly the idea of 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 um, you know how how do we maintain the social democratic base? That's a that's a big area of issue that we are we are interested in 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 pursuing. Uh, you know, we'll be working towards uh, most. Uh, it's been become a tradition for Chifley to host a major sort of conference, uh, looking ahead for the labour movement sort of post the election. So we are looking to try and host uh, one of those at the end of the year, where we can actually have a big deep dive and a serious discussion about about the sort of policy issues that 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 we have we have touched on you know, in our conversation today. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I personally am. am Interested in in uh, in shifting conversations on the future of work from the sort of what what might, might call the superficial level that it exists at the moment, where people are, you know, it's either the oh we're all going to be ruined because of robots, so give us a UBI, or no, it's all going to be great because of robots, and we've already adapted and we adapt many times. To actually, what are the the actual policies we need to do to prepare people for automation? You know, wh- whether the outcome is going to be, you know, the former or the latter, sort of Armageddon or or increased productivity. Um, either way, we need people prepared. But at the moment, we seem stuck in this stasis in conversations about the future of work, where we just go round and round in a circle talking between between those two binary choices. Whereas I think we need to spend a lot more time uh, thinking about. You know what are the actual policy policy prescriptions we we need to put in place uh, to prepare people for, for for the workforce of the future and to and to help people through with transitions. I mean, one one thing we need to look at is is you know there's a lot of uh, jibber jabber about uh, and you know the concept of lifelong learning and people should be lifelong learning and that will uh, that will prepare them for the future. But the problem with the current debate in that sphere is it all or less relies on you, the individual. It's like you should be uh, looking after your own future. You should be the one getting lifelong learning. Well, no, it's if there are societal structural changes happening, then uh, then it's going to take a, again, getting back to the idea of a tripartite accord type agreement, it's going to take a tripartite conversation between, you know, government, which provides educational opportunities, uh, between employers who should actually care about guaranteeing the skills of their workforce and employers and employees themselves. You know, what what are sort of policies do we need to enact in that space? You know, how do we get that sort of tripartite agreement? So there's some of the things we'll be looking at. But I'm quite, um, you know, excited uh, 
by the fact um, that that we'll be having this conference at the end of the year, where we can thrash out a whole bunch of issues, um, you know, about where to next for social democracy. Um, it's amazing um, and incredibly important work that Chifley does uh, for the party in this uh, policy development um, space. Is there there are ways in which um, punters out there, social democrats, can um, give their support to Chifley? So here's, here's your chance, uh, Brett, to give it a bit of a plug. Um, what ways can people actually get involved? Is it mailing lists? Or... Uh, excellent. Well, one, one of the things that you know, our, our vision of Chifley is to create a, what we call a labour culture of ideas. And what I'd like to see is I'd really like to, you know, we have a number of platforms, uh, but particularly a blog space. I'd really like, uh, you know, social democratically aligned people, labor aligned people to really uh, dig in and start debating some of these issues. You know, I mean, uh, our blog space is an open forum. Uh, I would love to see it used more uh, by people you know, as a as a place to express their opinions and you know and express their their policy conversations. You know, we we take contributions, uh, but I think having that conversation across the wider labour movement is going to be really important for us, particularly coming off the back of, you know, the, the, what was a shock for all of us election loss that that you know none of none nobody I think in the labour movement was expecting, and certainly, you know, very few people around the country were expecting or prepared for it. So I think. It's a really important time now for people to uh, to you know to start expressing ideas and to having those policy debates in, inside our party, inside our movement. And you know, Chifley, as I say, is, is about creating that labour culture of ideas. So, so we welcome contributions to the to the to the blog and the website in that respect. Uh, you know, and also come along to our events when we have them. We try to have regular events where 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 policy is discussed. I mean, I am. I've been in this job 18 months and I'm constantly happily amazed at the uh, and gratified at the thirst for discussion of actual policy there is amongst amongst uh, people in Australia and Labor supporters in particular. I think because so much of the political coverage we have is the horse race type coverage and the sort of inside, you know, Canberra type coverage and what's going on and what machinations is happening rather than a conversation. People are actually hungry to have a conversation. So, you know, I thank all the people who've come to our events and, you know, hope to put on many more and hope people will come to many more because we want to have a, we want to have that conversation. We want to have that discussion. Um, I saw it firsthand last year when uh, in my old role as Assistant Secretary of the Party, we organised the uh, Labor Activist Conference out at um, uh, Holmes Glen TAFE in, uh, in Chadston. Uh, and one of the sessions that um, was run that day was um, by your good self in your capacity at, at, at Chifley. Um, and it was a packed room. Uh, no, it was it was fantastic, and it was it was it was great questions and great engagement, and because people are interested, you know, and and that speech I gave was based around the concept of good policy is good politics, and you know if we go back right to where we started our conversation today, I still believe that, and you know, and 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 it's why we do need to keep fighting for good policy inside the labour movement. Um, so if they do want to jump on uh, that blog space, how do they go about it? So they go to your website or what's the... Uh, what's uh, yeah, so, so so the website is www.chifley.org.au and, uh, you know, there's there's some links through there to, to uh, um, you know, to uh, to to get in touch uh, with with us in terms of, you know, wanting to contribute and and, and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, happy, happy to have conversations with people, happy to take contributions. And of course, you know, always happy for other more 
tangible, less ideas-focused forms of support as well, as, a, as are all, I think, tank peers. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and we'll probably put the links up uh, on the um, on the Dunn Street, uh, uh, pod, uh, sorry, Dunn Street uh, Facebook and all the other sort of social media things as well for people to um, click on and uh, get involved. Before you go, let's quickly, okay, this is the bit where those who are not into baseball can uh, stop listening. But before you do go, don't forget, um, uh, please, uh, um, if you sub- uh, if you listen to the podcast and you enjoy it and you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, make sure you subscribe via Apple Podcasts and leave a review and give us a rating because it helps us with um, helping building momentum and, and, and an audience for the podcast. We've started from scratch, but over the last five episodes, we've grown week by week, which has been amazing. And the, and the feedback we've been getting from people who have been listening has been fantastic. If you're, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, um, please share it um, amongst your networks. That also helps grow the podcast. We've got some great guests lined up into the future. Um, but the more people that know about it means that the more popular it is, it means I have more clout to go and actually talk to people and say, hey, you should come onto this podcast. It's the only uh, social democratic voice in the podcast world for Australia. Please come on the show and, uh, and uh, come and talk to our audience. So by you sharing and, and promoting the podcast helps me um, get some leverage and bringing some really, really good guests on going forward. So please do that. Now, Brett, let's talk Red Sox. Excellent. And let me just say, Stephen, congratulations on setting up the podcast. I think it is a really important contribution to to public debate in Australia and, uh, you know, a a good format where people can have conversations. Oh, Brett, I appreciate that. And uh, you can come back again next time for sure. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, you and I are both uh, avid uh, members of Red Sox Nation uh, and we've had some wonderful years um, since uh, 2004, um, not Less, not to mention last year's um, World Series uh, victory uh, in uh, six games against the uh, actually no, five games. Sorry, I should say okay. against the uh, LA Dodgers, um, which happened right through the the high point of the 2018 Victorian state election. And I was working at CHQ, and let me tell you, it was challenging because there were TVs everywhere, and I had to stress to all of my colleagues, please please do not put on the sport. And when the news would come on um, at four o'clock and then five o'clock and then six o'clock and then seven o'clock, I had to go work in another room because eventually the sport bullet would come up and it was going to be up there because I was watching the games that night when I got home. And some of them went, as you know, um, extra innings. And one of them, I didn't get to bed till uh, two in the morning, <laughs> two in the morning. Um, but the Red Sox obviously are doing really well at the moment. Uh, sorry, um, historically, given the, the pain that the team has experienced over a century. But this year has been a, a bit of a hangover for us where, um, you know, we're, we're playing 500 baseball right now. We're 34 wins, 34 losses. Um, we're eight games behind the Yankees and the Rays in the American League East. Um, what are your thoughts on how this season's panned out so far? Uh, I think it would always be hard to uh, repeat the sublime uh, levels of, of last year in terms of how great that uh, whatever was, 105 win season, I think. Uh, I can't remember exactly, maybe more, that we had last year. It was just a brilliant season where everything clearly, clearly clicked. Uh, and, you know, I was watching yesterday's game, in fact, where we – uh, blew it in the late innings. You know, towards the end of the game, this stat popped up about you know last year's sort of amazing, uh, you know, whatever you did, 85 wins whenever leading in the eighth inning or something. And this year it was, you know, quite a lot. Well, the season's only halfway through, but quite a lot less 
um, anyway, the percentage-wise of what we're winning or how we're blowing games. So, yeah, it's a it's a sobering come down. Um, you know, uh, I've got some Boston friends who who seem to be rather generous, given that you know that they lived through a lot more terrible years on the Red Sox than than, than I have. Uh, where um, you know they 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 are now saying, oh well, you know, we've won four times in the last. Uh, 15 years. So, you know, so if other teams win, we're not so happy. I, I'm in the camp that I'd love to win every year. So, so it has been uh, a little disappointing to see. Um, it's, it's one of those things. We've still got essentially the same highly talented team as last year. So uh, maybe it is just, maybe it is literally just a hangover. Do you think uh, brought- the fact that, that we were never going to compete at that level and, uh, you know, coming down from the high, which probably carried on well into the postseason. uh, uh, not person well into the off season, uh, you know, uh, as well, and uh, and carries on now. But um, you know, uh, just like in politics, how we often seem to forget the lessons of the past. I do wonder whether the the Red Sox uh, managers at the moment have forgotten the lessons of the past. Where I recall in the, I think it was two thousand and three, uh, maybe two thousand and two, uh, where we decided we were going to based on uh, sabermetrics and statistics have closer by committee. Uh, um, and that didn't work then, um, almost 20 years ago, and I'm not sure it's working now. Uh, and I was even looking today on a, on a website, and there was, uh, uh, you know, stats around the fact that uh, individually the guys who are closing uh, when they're pitching through the sixth, seventh, and eighth innings are, are really, really doing very well. And then they hit the ninth, and uh, for some reason it all blows out. So, so whether it is. Um, simply psychology or whatever, I think uh, one cannot underestimate the, the 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 power that having a dominant closer gets you. And given we don't have one, although, you know, I'm not unhappy that we traded last year's closer because I wasn't sure by the end of the uh, the postseason that my heart could handle much more of um, the uh, – Shall we say excitement brought about by by by, by Kimbrel uh, in closing for us? Me but stress uh, headaches like uh, proportions that I've never experienced um, before. But uh, but but I think that that not having a closer is probably a mistake this year. Uh, uh, you know, we're still we're still not out of it, but uh, you know, it, it it doesn't help when you lose a lot of games. You know, people say baseball season is 165 games long. You don't win in April. Well. I disagree with that. When you lose more games than you win in any given month, it puts you behind the eight ball. The um, the offense hasn't fired as much as it was last year. Like uh, Mookie Betts is, you know, hitting two sixty two seventy, whereas last year he was up, you know, over three hundred. Uh, JD Martinez is just over three hundred. Uh, Andrew Benatendi is sort of two sixty. Um, it's um, I mean, there are a couple of standouts, like uh, Devers is having a breakout season. He's doing quite well. Uh, Christian Vasquez, when he is behind uh, the plate, is also hitting quite well. But overall, our run production in crucial games hasn't been what it was last year. But I did see a stat the other day that we've produced more runs than the Yankees or the Houston Astros, yet we are eight games behind them. So obviously, we're bashing teams up that aren't that very good. But when it comes to crucial games where we need to get the win, we just can't seem to deliver. Yeah, I think I think that that seems to be it. It's uh, it's you know I wouldn't tell you necessarily choking, but it's clearly uh, against the higher quality uh, opposition. We're not not bringing it home. So yeah, I don't know whether it is a it is a uh, it is a um, 
and it's just a continuing rolling hangover or what, but it might be time for, uh, you know, Alex Cora to uh, do what managers do occasionally and have one of those come to Jesus team meetings where everything's fresh, fresh out and, and see if that helps them pull up their socks. Do you predict postseason baseball for the Sox this October? Uh, at this point, I would not be holding my breath. Um, and I will be looking forward to the fact that in uh, a few weeks' time, I'll actually be in Fenway Park for the replay of the World Series uh, against the Dodgers. So I'm looking forward to that. But you know, that might be the highlight of my baseball watching season this year. I fear. Oh, you, you kept that quiet. You didn't tell me that before we started the podcast. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I'm uh, uh, having a couple of weeks off and going on a little bit of a baseball road trip uh, through the Midwest. But uh, the highlight will be uh, returning back to Fenway Park, where I haven't been for a number of years to watch a game. So, Rodio, I, I, just to extrapolate a bit, that what uh, what stadiums are you taking in when, it, when you're traveling? Through ah, the so we got uh, Kansas City uh, and St. Louis and uh, Chicago and uh, a bit of minor league baseball in Toledo because uh, minor league baseball is always fun, and then uh, ending up in Pittsburgh. So place I haven't been to see baseball before, so I'm looking quite forward to it. That's fantastic. And obviously, I'm assuming when you're in Chicago, you'll uh, visit uh, uh, 1060 West Addison. 1060 West Addison. We will be there for Wrigley Field for, I believe, John Lester Bobblehead Day. <laughs> you've, uh, you've got it all worked out. You should run tours. No, exactly. Well, if this one works out, uh, I might just do that. I might, uh, I might decide that... Uh, you know, uh, running a think tank uh, by day and baseball tours by night might be the way to go. Absolutely. Uh, Brett, look, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast today, not just to talk about uh, Red Sox baseball, but also obviously the, uh, the more substantive things uh, for our listeners and that is the, the policy of our wonderful movement and how we can uh, collectively try and make our nation a better place to, to, to live and raise families. Um, we wish you the best of luck with Chifley. You've done a great job since you've come in there 18 months ago. Um, you've got um, some big... Uh, challenges ahead and I uh, can I just encourage anyone who's listening to, still listening to this episode um, please go on to the Chifley website um, and register your interest the more people in our movement that are involved in the development of our policy the stronger our party will be and our movement will be um, whether you're a, you know you're active in your local branch or if you're not um, uh, please get involved in, in Chifley um, and make your contribution to shape um, hopefully more successful state and federal labor parties uh, Brett, best of luck in the future. Thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me, and uh, good luck uh, with the podcast. I think it's a great addition to the to the landscape, as I say. And go socks. Go socks. Go socks.